Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee Dee. I'm Maz Mary. And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us on this pre-recorded conversation. You know, not everybody in the whole wide world can do an 8.30 live conversation. So when we have an opportunity to talk with someone who can't, we pre-record and we're always happy to have had the conversation. So that is the case today. We're talking with John M. from Soul Speak. Hi, John. Hey, John. I'm doing great. Yes, John, it was Sober Speak. You got it. And I'm so, glad to be here. And thank these, you. these J-O-Bs get in my way, you know? I know. Uh, Isn't it amazing? The need <laughs> right, for this cash is, really, really can wreck the best of intentions. That's right. Well, we're really happy to have you on. We've spent some time on your website, Sober Speak, and we're fascinated by the work that you're doing and uh, are just really happy to have you joining us. So, I'm glad to be here. John, let's let's start with the question we most often start with, which is just you tell us your journey from there to here, and you can start wherever you want and get to wherever you want. Okay. So do you you kind of want my uh, message of sobriety and where I was in life? Yeah. Right? yeah. Kind of like what I was like, what happened, and what it's like now, kind of thing, right? Yeah. Okay. You got it. Well. Uh, to make a, by the grace of God, and I truly mean that, uh, I have been uh, sober since uh, May 29th of 1989. In fact, I just celebrated 33 years of sobriety uh, because of a lot of uh, good people all around me, a God of my understanding, and hopefully I did a few right things along the way. Um, and, but before 1980, I went in and out of like Alcoholics Anonymous for three years from 1986 to 1989. Um, and, uh, I, I wouldn't recommend that for anybody. If you ever heard somebody say, when you have a belly full of booze and a head full of AA or recovery of any sort, it's not a good mixture. Uh, because, you know, you're, uh, at least for me, I was sitting at the bars and I'd see people from AA walk in to the restaurant, you know, wherever they were, or uh, I would always be thinking about, uh, um, you know, why I should not be sitting at this bar or why I should not be sitting at home drinking all this alcohol. So um, I was kind of the, my, the, uh, the song that I always loved when I was drinking, and I still love the song today, was Desperado. Okay. <laughs> kind of my drinking song. I would uh, I would uh, uh, play that to the to, to the nth degree, and then I would uh, go driving down the highway, uh, speeding and uh, uh, drinking uh, tequila. Uh, and, and I would just be bawling my eyes out. By the way, the Department of Highway and Transportation does not recommend that as a way to drive down the highway. You don't want to really be doing that, but, you know, it, that was my story, and that's what I was doing. Yeah. And, and it would kind of get to that part in the, uh, in the song where it says, uh, you better let somebody love you before it's, before too, it's too late. late. And I would just yep. bawl my eyes out and... Uh, 
And that's kind of the life I was living. Like I said, and I was in and out. I, I would come in at AA, I would go out. I would come, I would get sober for, you know, a couple months. And, and then I would have to, you know, go out and celebrate or do whatever I was doing there. And so um, uh, finally in 1989, I had this uh, sponsor who took me aside and he says, hey, have you uh, like uh, ever worked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous since you've been coming around these meetings? And I'm like, Wow, I could have had a V8. No, no, I haven't done that. And uh, he got me working those steps. And for me personally, this is my journey. I haven't had to have a drink since that time. Uh, coming to know a God of my understanding, you know, I came from a, a background that, you know, I had a mom that uh, was uh, atheist at, or agnostic at best. Uh, she didn't want me to have anything to do with God. And every time I asked her to, if I could go and do something like that, she was not real keen on it. Um, so I, I, everything that I learned about God, I shouldn't say everything. Uh, most of the things I learned about God was like a brand new penny for me, uh, for me coming into AA and learning that way of life. Speaking of that mom, um, she's a very big part of my story. Uh, she was, she had an eighth grade education. She was from Scotland. My dad met her when she was in the service, so, which was a you know kind of a common thing back then. He was from the United States. He was from Tennessee, so I would say I'm half hillbilly and half Scottish. And he would kind of one in the, the same, John. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they are. <laughs> so he would. So he they got married and uh, they came back over here, and then I was born in Bangor, Maine don't know anything about it. I mean, I've been back as an adult when traveling on business, but I didn't know anything about it then. I was an Air Force brat for the first six years of my life. And now I live, I live in Texas. Uh, there's a bumper sticker down here in Texas that says, uh, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as quick as I could. And that's kind of been my, uh, that's kind of been my story. So I, I've been here and that's when me and my, my parents divorced when I was, I don't know, five or six. And all of a sudden, I started noticing, I shouldn't say all of a sudden, it was like a, around, uh, and it was me and my mom on my own, right, on our own, right? I was an only child, and uh, we were growing up, and we were just doing life. And all of a sudden, around, I'd say around eight, nine years old, all of a sudden, I started noticing that my mom was a little different, if you will. Um, she would go in to check the stove, and she would turn a little switch and she would go off, 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 like 40 or 50 times over. She would go to lock the front door, she would hit the lock button, and then she would go lock, lock, lock. And this was without all the, the car doors. Uh, this was with a lot of things. And to make a long story short, no one really talked about any sort of mental illness back when I was a kid, but she had a pretty severe uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Now I have people who call me OCD, which I am to some degree, and I guess everybody has it, but this was true obsessive compulsive disorder. And I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was weird. Me and my mom in the house and she's doing all this stuff and uh, it's not turning out the um, it, it was just weird. I didn't want to bring any friends over to the house or anything. We lived in these small apartments. She always had kind of menial jobs and such. And um, uh, But she was doing the best she could and making sure that I was provided for. And then a few years after that, I started to notice that she had some pretty uh, interesting eating habits, um, like uh, 
in other words, there she is. For, she was from Scotland, as I told you, and that she there was this. Uh, I I don't know who it was. Some some princess or something like that is uh, back in the day, and they used to say you can never be too rich or too thin. And she took that to heart. Uh, and she uh, was an anorexic. She developed uh, anorexia. Uh, she developed, she had bulimia and. Um, she would go out to the pool thinking that she looked like all that, so to speak. But um, in, in reality, you know, she was like uh, 80, 90 pounds and her bones were jutting out of her uh, shoulders and ribs and everywhere else. And it was just a very kind of scary kind of scene, really. And then she developed all these kind of weird uh, illnesses. I, I don't really know how to describe them. They were like breathing illnesses. She'd go to the doctor. They said, no, you don't have asthma. You don't have anything. And she would have words that went through her head on a consistent basis, like, uh, you know, death or whatever. And we would sit at the, the kitchen table where we would talk about, you know, her suicide and what she was thinking of. And um, it, it was, and then there was me who was I got to be 17 and all of a sudden I found this thing called alcohol uh, and it was a perfect storm. I wanted nothing to do with the apartment we were living in. I wanted to be out of the apartment. I wanted to be with my friends and she wanted nothing but for me to stay inside that apartment. So we were getting lots of fights about me going out. You know, I have to push her out of the way and all that sort of stuff. And um, that, that went on for uh, a couple of years. And then uh, finally I got out on my own um, and I was kind of living life. And uh, that's when my, my alcoholism and drug addiction, I was a, what'd you call it? A, an entrepreneur, uh, if you will, uh, with a lot of uh, accessories, uh, dealing those things with a lot of different people and um, uh, making some good money along the way. Um, but it's not a way to live. You don't want to have tinfoil on your, windows. Uh, and every time, and, and at the time, there's no such thing as caller ID. And, you know, uh, when people would call you, you know, you're wondering who's listening in on your calls all the time. It's just not a way to live life. And so I got on with that kind of life. And then I got kind of sort of respectable and I gave up a lot of the, the entrepreneurial stuff. And then I got a corporate job and I started working that and I started doing the best I could. And I mainly kind of just turned to alcohol at that time. And um, that's when, like I said, I, I uh, at some point along the way, I found Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to go back to that mom of mine, because at some point I needed to go back. You're familiar with the steps of AA, right? Uh, you want to go back, you want to make amends. And um, I found that I, I, I knew that my mother was, she wasn't living on the streets, but she roamed the streets. And the reason I knew this is because my friends would see her walking down the road uh, over by where we grew up. And uh, she was very recognizable. She was very, very thin, uh, you know, some, probably around 90 pounds or so. And she had, she would dye her hair jet black uh, and she would wear all black clothes and she'd have a black purse and she, and she shaved her head with like a, a number two razor. Um, so she very much stood out. And she would go into all these shops and she would have conversations. She would get kicked out of these shops all the time. And it was just the kind of life that she was living. And so uh, my friends would tell me about her. They would see her. So I knew where she was. 
And I'd been sober for probably three or four months and I was working through these uh, steps. And I said to my sponsor, uh, uh, who's still my sponsor today, by the way, uh, I got him in 1989 and I tell him he's a, a temporary sponsor. I'm going <laughs> to see how he does. I'm, yeah. You don't want to make any snap decisions. Right, right, right. right. Let's just uh, see, if he, see if he can learn the ropes and treat me right. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, I went to go uh, uh, make amends to her. I found her. She was in the street. I drove down there. And I said, uh, I could see her from a distance. I got out of my car. She was walking. I knew where she'd be. And I said, Mom, it's me. It's Johnny. She called me Johnny. And uh, she looked at me from quite a way off. And she said, um, I hate you. Get out of my life. I never want to see you again. She turned on her heels and she walked away. I hadn't seen her probably in like three years at this time. It's been quite a while. And so my sponsor said basically, you know, hey, listen, she's emotionally unavailable. You know, you did what you could. Let's just kind of get on with your life. And I did that. I went back to school and I got my degree, which is kind of a big deal. Nobody in my family had ever graduated from college before. And uh, I was going to be somebody, right? Um, um, but it was nice to have that feeling of getting that piece of paper. And the reason I say that is because after that two years was up, when it, two, three years, when I went back to school, because I already had some credits, I went, uh, I was driving, to, I had in my back seat, I had these, uh, these invitations to my graduation. And there's something I was just driving down the road. And you never know how you get these. Like uh, I'm driving down the road and I got this, this little thought. I said, time to go find her again. And I was like, I don't want to do this. I really, really don't want to do this. But I knew I needed to follow that instinct. So I went back to the same neighborhood. I got out. I walked into the, one of the stores around the place. And I said, hey, listen, I'm looking for my mom. She's... And I described her and they were all, we know your mom, right? She's in her all the time. The interesting part though is we haven't seen her in a couple of weeks and that's very unusual. You, know, you may want to check around. So I called all the hospitals in the area and lo and behold, um, I called, I, I, one of them I called was uh, Parkland uh, in, down here in Dallas. So Parkland is a, uh, it's where JFK died and uh, it's a, uh, the, the state or the city a hospital. And so I called down there and they said, well, we can't confirm or deny, but if she's here, we'll call you back. Within a week or two, they called me back and they said, we can confirm your mom is here. She was deemed both a threat to herself and to society. And a judge um, ordered her to come in here to uh, Parkland. And she says, she's willing to see you if you are. So I went down there um, an interesting day for me. I remember walking in and knocking on the, the doors to get in. It was this big iron door. I don't know if you've ever seen the film One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, but walking in there was just like walking into a real insane asylum. I mean, this was no joke. And I mean, there were people wandering aimlessly all over the place, uh, kind of looking at me. And uh, uh, there was my mom at that kitchen table. And I went over and I sat next to her. And I said, hey, mom, um, uh, it's good to see you again. She was 78 pounds. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody 78 pounds or not, but especially when it's your mother, it's, uh, it's frightening. And um, so we had a talk and toward the end of it, she said something to the effect of, you know, there's something different about you. 
She had never said that to her before. She says, is, this, is it this God that you speak of? And I said, I don't know, Mom. You know, hopefully that has something to do with it. I said, but I said to her, I said, listen, Mom, I, I don't know what it was between me and you, but whatever it was, it's not with me anymore. And, uh, and I want you to be happy and joyous and free. And I don't know how you're going to get there, but uh, um, let's just take this a day at a time. And I remember walking out of that place and as that big door slammed behind me and I was walking to my car across the parking lot, I knew for whatever reason that a piece of me had floated away. And because I was doing the things that I needed to do and not avoiding the situation, um, I knew I was never going to be the same again. So I want to fast forward about 10 years. Uh, well, let me just go over the first couple of years first. So we would kind of see each other every once in a while. Um, it was too, it, it, it was just too tough for me to see her too often. Uh, and then they got her on some medicine. She started getting well. She started, we started having a relationship. And we started seeing each other on a consistent basis. Um, and um, it's it interesting, I, you know, I used to go to the, uh, to the uh, drugstore all the time, the you know, Walgreens or Eckerd's or whatever you have in your area. And I would look at all the Mother's Day's cards when I came along. And I would think to myself, none of these work, right? Absolutely none of them. I just want blank cards to say happy Mother's Day. I don't even want to send one or deliver one. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I felt like I had been, like there was a black cloud over me because I had to live that way. And other people were able to have relationships with their mothers. Now, in reality, I know nowadays that there are a lot of people that have difficulties with their parents as well, but that's the way it felt at the time. And, uh, but during this year, during these 10 years or so, um, I would go to the drugstore and because of the relationship that we were having, it's like every one of those Mother's Day card worked for me. And I would get them and I would sign them and I would take them or I would deliver them and we'd have good conversations and we'd go out shopping on Mother's Day. I said, what do you want, mom? She goes, I want another black purse. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then she wanted another black sweater. Uh, she wanted maybe some black earrings, whatever the case may be. And I would say, hey, mom, you know, when you dress like you dress and you shave your head the way you shave your head, you know, people are looking at you, right? And she goes, I know. I said, all right, mom, as long as it makes you happy and, and you know, that, that's fine. And so we developed a relationship. And then one night I got this call from her. She said, hey, can you come here? I'm, I'm not feeling well. I'm, I'm having some pains in my stomach. I said, sure, I can come over. We took her to the emergency room. They checked her in. And uh, she was just having all sorts of pain. And um, she was in the hospital for two or three days. And I would go there every day. And on the third day, I believe it was, I was there at lunch. And she was, she was a tough, tough woman, right? She grew up on the streets of Glasgow. And so pain and, you know, dealing with... She, people would be scared of her, right? And where she'd walk. And she was only like five foot. Two, I think, right? She was, she, but she just had this look about her. She was really tough, um, but she was having this pain. And I called the doctor and I said, hey, doc, I, I don't know what's going on, but 
you know, she, I know she's asking for some more pain medicine, but you know, this is my mom's not an addict. You know, she just, she really is in pain. They said, well, we've given her all we can for right now. We'll come after lunch. And I got off that call and I went back into her room and I said, mom, I, I think they're going to come after lunch and try to give you some more pain medicine to alleviate some of this. And she smiled and she stuck her hands out and I grabbed her hand. And I had never seen anything like this before, but her little eyes just rolled right up into the back of her head. And I didn't know what was going on, but I knew it was serious. And I went to the nurse's station real quick. There's something there that they have called code blue. I had never seen it before. They hit the code blue. And all of a sudden there were like 10 to 15 medical personnel that were coming in the room there trying to save her life. And the woman that I was dating at the time, she's now my wife. Um, she had been trying to find some help for my mom. Uh, somebody who could help her with some of this pain. And she found like a, a GI person or something like that. And she called me and my phone was on my hip and I picked up my phone and uh, I was kneeling. And she said, I think I found somebody to help your mom. And I said, it's too late. I'm watching her right now in front of me. She's dying as we speak. And so she ended up coming on down there and then the doctor came out of the room and uh, he said, I'm sorry, we tried. If you'd like to go back in there and say goodbye to her, you can't. And I went in there. Um, I said goodbye to my mom. We had the eulogy the next day, or we had the eulogy like a week later. But I can tell you of those next several weeks, excuse me, those next several days, um, I never knew it was possible to feel so much grief. I didn't even know really what grief was. Now I understand when people say somebody they've lost in their life or they lost a pet or whatever, what that grief was like. I mean, it came pouring out of me. And my sponsor says, you're doing the right thing. Just keep crying. Just keep thinking about it. Don't let it stop. And I did that. And, uh, and it kept coming and coming and coming. And when I gave her eulogy, I remember I said something to the effect of, um, I had a lot of feelings come up this week, but none of them were regret. Uh, because I had told her I loved her so many times. I had done the things that I needed to do. Um, and I had no regrets, no regrets whatsoever. I just do, I just had grief of missing her. And um, when I went in to clean up her apartment after it was all done, there was a little shoe box up in her closet. I pulled that shoe box out every single one of those mother stays cards that I've given her over the past 10 years were, were saved in that little shoe box. And so the point to the story, I guess, is this is the same mother and it's the same son. Are these extravagant promises? I, I think not. They're coming true among us. Um, I didn't do anything except follow process that mm. Alcoholics Anonymous told me to follow. So I've got so much more to my story. I, I don't know exactly what you guys want me to well, talk about. That's, that's an incredible, that's incredible story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, yeah, I, I feel like this is not a conversation I need to lead. I'm not the one who's experienced AA with, with the two of you. So what's, what's the most valuable lesson 
you think you would give someone who would come to you and say, hey, I think it's time for me to get to the first step of treatment? Well, it happens all the time. Uh, and it happens all the time, both on my podcast, uh, Sober Speak, and it happens on the website. I get people contacting me all the time. I sponsor a lot of guys. Uh, you know, we talk to people. I'm still very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, the, so really, it's not so much advice. It's usually sharing experience, strength, and hope. And that's what you see within the rooms, right? You don't have somebody saying, this is what you should do. You know, this is what you're like. You know, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. You just have people saying, you know, hey, listen, this is what I was like. I followed the process. I took the steps. And this is what my life is like nowadays. If you want me to show you what the big book says about the first step of alcoholism, or if you want me to show you how to work through these steps, I'm all in. I'll do whatever you ask. Uh, however, if you don't want it and you can find it some other way, God bless you. You know, we're behind you. You know, we just want you to get well. AA is not the only way that people can get sober. There are other ways. Um, but I can tell you that, I, I mean, I just see it work in spades. You know, I know there are people that have had bad experiences. With AA. You know, it's any organization you can have bad experience with. However, um, if you want to work the first step and you want to see what it says, you know, if you've honestly tried to quit drinking, you know, and uh, you can't stop it too. Uh, the, the big book says uh, we are men and women who have essentially lost the ability to control our drinking. I had gotten to that point, without a doubt. Uh, in, but I didn't know it until I'd gone through like the fourth and the fifth step. And for those of you who don't know that, what that is, is where you write down your inventory. I had gone through the fourth step and I looked at it in the fifth step and go, this is nuts. I've been doing this for so long. What is wrong with me? I mean, who would do this? And it's interesting. Other people, usually when you're talking to alcoholics, you know, you can see, they can see it. All the other people that are around them can see it, but they cannot see it. Uh, it's plain as day to others. Uh, but for me to be able to see it, is it can be challenging and i don't know why that is it just is just human nature and that's not only with alcoholism right that's with shopping addictions sex addictions uh with um uh, you know drug addiction just they're all over the map right uh everybody has not everybody most people have some sort of vice right uh, just with me it got to the point of it was life or death uh, uh, and uh, it was definitely death spiritually. Uh, I, you know, I would look in the mirror and I would have these big dark eyes and, and I knew that you knew what kind of life I was living. In reality, I, I don't think anybody was really thinking of it. However, uh, it, it was something that was inside me that, uh, I, I just lived like this, uh, it was just a dark life. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. What brought you to your first AA meeting? Yeah. Did you go of your own accord? No, no. Uh, I had seen some things on TV. There was this basketball player at the time, and he was talking about this 
this thing he called a big book and he was talking about, you know, being involved with these people in meetings. And I knew it was Alcoholics Anonymous he was talking about. And I actually called the central office here in Dallas. And I'll never meet this gentleman, or I'll, I'll never know exactly who he is, but I remember that night. I mean, I was lit. Right? A lot of people call when they're drinking, you know, you have all the remorse and all that sort of stuff. Well, I remember talking to him. And there was one thing that he said that kind of caught my attention. He said, um, the only requirement for membership to Alcoholics Anonymous is a desire to stop drinking. And I knew I had that. Um, and, and that stuck with, it's not like I went that night. Uh, it took me a couple of years past that to finally, you know, kind of come into the first, uh, uh meeting. Uh, but then, you know, it, I took all these, what you call geographical cures, right? I kept moving to another state thinking, okay, that's going to cure me. And this is going to cure me. But, you know, I was always there, which is the issue. And, uh, then I finally, uh, like I said, in 1986, I went to this meeting and, uh, uh, I don't remember exactly how I found it at the time, you know, their telephone books and addresses and you're doing the best you could. There was no GPS or anything like that. We had to do it the hard way back in my day, you know. Climb uphill uh, both ways. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I went to that meeting. I don't remember exactly how I found it, but I knew that I found it was the Carrollton Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in uh, uh, the Dallas area. I went in there and all I remember, all, what I remembered from that meeting is that there was some lady who was there and she was from New York and her friend had died like either that day or the day before. And she was like a couple years sober. I was like, well, how, well, how is she doing this? Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't even imagine going through a difficulty like that, not drinking. That's what really stuck with me. And then there were some friendly people there. Uh, but unfortunately, I had like three years of going in and out past that. And uh, this last time that I came back in, I didn't, I had gotten so many what they call desire chips. Right? I kept, and one time I came home drunk and I threw it in the trash can and uh, I threw all of them in the trash can. And I, oh, this last time I came back in, I didn't even think that I was going to stick around. Uh, but I knew it was the place that I needed to be. And the only way that I figured out my sobriety date, May 29th, was I, uh, I went back to look at all these credit card receipts from, you know, all the drinking I had been out doing. That's how I kind of figured out what my sobriety date was. Wow. So have you, I mean, you've been doing this a wonderfully, well, I say wonderfully long time. And I say wonderfully as opposed to you've actually, it's clear that you've you set up your podcast. You've probably helped a wonderful amount of people. Um, do you see trends? Do you think, the the prevalence for for alcoholism is increasing over the years do, do you can you put a, your finger on do you think more people are admitting they're alcoholics or is it because more people are drinking or more people want help you have any sense and how that those figures will pay out from your experience? well yeah i'm not like a statistician or anything like that but i know you know that you're just kind of asking what my gut feel on that is. That's, yeah. that's exactly what i'm after yeah, so here's what I would say is that um, in my estimation, uh, I would say that the percentage of people who are alcoholics within the within the population is probably about the same. It's always been, right? 
right? I hear, I hear 10% sometimes, I hear 5% sometimes. I don't know what the actual number. So that percentage has always been about the same. However, I guess what has changed over the time, even from when I came in in 1989, is that there's not as much stigma uh, yeah. associated. So people kind of come out and they'll talk about it a little bit more. But now it's still not, you know, top of the line what kids it's are thinking celebrated. about. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right. It's not like, hey, I finally made it to AA. I mean, you know, when you have people coming in, I mean, I see it all the time. And I and I get I get emails and messages from my podcast all the time saying, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm just now starting the discovery process. You know, I don't want to go to a meeting. You know, your podcast is helping me. You know, it basically what the podcast does is it kind of humanizes a little bit and, and helps people to see that, hey, you know, these are these are regular people, right? They're just just they're just trying to get sober. We're all trying to get sober. We're all trying to help each other out. But back to your question is, uh, I don't think there's any difference in the, the the percentage of people, at least that are. But I think that there are people that now are uh, m- m- more willing to to discuss it, both at public level and privately. And uh, you know, Dr. Bob, who's one of the founders, in fact, he said that. You know, and by the way, we've had a discussion before we got here. The reason I don't want the video of me is not because I'm ashamed of being an alcoholic. It's because I'm trying to respect what Dr. Bob did. He says, in essence, uh, uh, if we're at the level of press, radio, or films, and this is basically, you know, radio, uh, it, that we not break our anonymity. However, if I'm not at the level of uh, press, radio, or films, it's it's almost criminal for me not to tell people, you know, that I am, uh, and everyone does with their anonymity what they want to do. But I'm I'm out there. I'm I'm in the open. But but I feel comfortable because I got a lot of years of sobriety around me. In the beginning, believe me, I did not want to do that, right? You're on, you're on shaky ground and you're just like, I don't even know if this is going to last, you know, much less go out and tell other people that I'm, that I'm sober. But uh, does that answer your question? It does actually. Thank you. I, I think it's really, um, I mean, we're just becoming both by invitation and by force a culture that is, I think, working really hard to try to right some wrongs. And I think one of the wrongs of our culture is that we have othered people who suffer with addiction. You know, we've really said, well, if you have a, if you have a cancer, you can't be held accountable for that. But if you drink, that's on you. And, you know, Maz and I have talked about this on Daily Dose. Nobody shoves that first drink down your throat, probably. I mean, occasionally, I guess that happens. But largely, people do elect to drink um, or to take a drug or to do any of the things that become a serious addiction. But at some point, it crosses from an elective activity to something entirely different. And those of us who have not either experienced it or lived with it cannot adequately understand that. I mean, I I lived with it and I can't tell you I absolutely understand it, but there is no question that Maz was being ravaged by alcohol. The way cancer would ravage a person. And so you can decide, well, 
but he's putting it in his mouth. Or you can say, yes, he is, but it is doing something to him that he no longer has any control over. And to decide that we're just going to say, well, you're a bad person. You're a bad person, John, because you did this is insane. That's an insane approach to take. We, we don't do that anyplace else. It's such a, like the era of telling someone that they're just a bad person because they've made some bad choices has got to be done. If, if daily dose, if sober speak does nothing more than help someone who's struggling feel like they're not a bad person, we've done our job. It's an incredible thing. Yeah, and there there is a fine balance in all of it, though. Uh, you know, I, I see different sides of it. Uh, like in other words, I work with the with the family members of uh, uh, you know to some degree, uh, and I know people who are very involved work with the family members of uh, alcoholics and addicts. And you know, the many times the alcoholic and addict is just um, oblivious, if you will. And it is the family members that are being really torn. I, I mean, they go through incredible anguish. And, and I feel for the family, right? And uh, even though I look at the alcoholic and I know that they have this, quote, illness or whatever the case may be, I, I, my, my feelings, I guess, get more projected toward the, the, the family members because of what they're going through. And so it's a, I don't know, it, it, it's a... Uh, it's very complicated, right? Uh, it's, it's not a one size fits all. Um, um, and, and there are people at different stages of their addiction. And, but to get them off that path, quite honestly, I mean, the numbers will show. I, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but you, I know just from experience, some get on that, some get on the path to recovery and some do not. And, and I don't like, I've been on the path to recovery for quite some time. And I, but I don't like look down and think like, or I don't think I, I, I'm special somehow. Like I, what, let me put it this way. Why God could, why God looked down and picked me up by the scruff of the neck and he has it others. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's only the mystery of God. And, and, you know, I know I've done some things well along the, along the road. However, I've seen people who go through the steps and it seems like they're doing what they're doing and they just can't lift this thing. And I feel so bad for them. Yeah, it's hard. There's a, there's a weird, I'll speak as an observer. I think there's a weird survivor's guilt. I even feel it as a spouse. So in our house, we had about a long period of mass drinking and then he went away and came home sober and has stayed sober ever since. And now because we're so public about it, I know all kinds of people whose spouses have been yeah. in and out and the up and the down and the, the roller coaster of emotions and financial and all of the pieces that go with it are impossible. Yeah. And so I, I'm right there with you. How in the world did the two of us sort of, at least as of today, stick on one landing. Yeah, I, mean, I think I spent the first year of my sobriety worried that it would end. Yeah, that like somebody would notice that you got too lucky and yeah. bop you on the head or something. And then, you know, I think I, I picked up my 18-month chip and I thought, all right, I, I got out of one of the perceived danger zones 
And then each time I got another, you know, I mean, I've got my, in February, I got my five-year chip. And I, I think, I, I don't think I've ever said this to Dana, but I think I finally decided to kind of relax a little bit more, <laughs> which is an odd thing to say, you know, I've, I've been sober, well, five years, four months and two weeks exactly today. So, but thank you. It's, it's, it was a fear thing, I think. Even being sober was like, no, I want this to last. Please don't let me screw this up. I still have healthy fears. I still have drunk dreams. I've been, you know, sober for a while and I still, uh, um, you know, I still, you know, see commercials every once in a while and go, oh, that looks good. And I go, wait, wait a second. Then I just kind of ask God to get me right back in line. And it's not like it ever goes away, right? I mean, we truly have a respite one day at a time. And I understand what you're talking about there with the, there, there's a, uh, I guess like a healthy fear. And then there's a uh, kind of a, uh, uh, and, and to me, what you described as a healthy fear. Uh, it's not like, you know, you, we, we all want to, you know, just kind of, when I say we all, we're, you know, um, people in sobriety, from my perspective, or at least I want to have this, uh, this, uh, this healthy fear that kind of says, okay, um, uh, it's out there. You could always come back and get me because I know guys that have been sober for as long as I have, and then they go, they go back out, and they usually don't last too long uh, because this is thing called it's a progressive disease, right? It is growing inside me when I am not, and I proved that to myself those three years when I was in and out. I thought it'd be like you know going back when I was you know seventeen again, you know taking some alcohol, and it was not. Uh, I was back up there very quickly. Yeah, that's a good reminder. I mean, yeah. it's a sobering reminder for not wanting to put a play on words, but it really is. I mean, I think I, I think we all, those of us who live in it and with it and, um, you know, however your experience with it is, we all have to stay vigilant, keep the candles lit, not, not so that it impedes our living or so that it keeps us from moving forward, but that we are just just alert to it because it's insidious and you're right i mean you sometimes come home from aa and say oh somebody picked up their 40-year chip and then two weeks later they'll be back to get a 24-hour chip i mean that's inconceivable yeah and yet it it's clearly very conceivable so wow john this has been an incredible conversation it was fantastic to actually have this conversation with you thank you Oh, you're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, we really, um, we really feel privileged. Yes. Absolutely. So, so to our audience, John has this very active podcast blog called Sober Speak. We'll put the link in the notes. Be sure and check it out. There's a Facebook page. We listened to some of your podcasts. There's a it's, lot of experience and a lot of advice there for you if you it, need it. It's so. clear you're doing work that is important and that people are um seeking it out so thank you for joining us Thanks, well god bless you thank you for having me you, take you care. as well take care we'll talk soon i hope bye-bye everybody else we'll see you next week bye-bye thanks so much for tuning in to daily dose of dr mary and dd if you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana Del Val. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, 
email me at d-a-y-n-a at d-a-y-n-a-d-e-l-v-a-l.com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.